This podcast contains strong language. Listener discretion is advised. And welcome to We're Not Over Six Feet Under, the podcast where we talk about the aughts most morose TV show about a Gen Xer and a funeral home and mortality, episode by episode, spoiler free. I'm your host, Jenna Shearer. I'm a writer, editor, and pop culture critic. And I'm your other host, Caroline McGraw. I'm a playwright and screenwriter. This week, we're talking about season one, episode 11, The Trip, which originally aired on August 12th, 2001. This episode was written by Rick Cleveland and directed by Michael Engler. And this week, we're very excited to have Lalite Marcus with us. Lalite is a travel editor at CNN. Her work has also appeared in Condé Nast Traveler, The Atlantic, Vogue, BuzzFeed, The Guardian, Vanity Fair, and more. Please buy her book, Save the Assistance. Welcome, Lalit. Hi, guys. You're a, a travel writer, and you're on a travel episode. That's true. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. we didn't plan it this way, but that worked out really well. It's it worked perfect. out really well. So how did you first get into Six Feet Under, and what does a show mean to you? So when I was in college, my dorm was really sketch, like most college dorms are, but for some reason, we had free HBO. Oh, my God. Yeah, I don't... That's very fancy. Yeah, it's like you didn't always have running water, and the bathrooms were gross, but we had HBO. So oh, I just man. assumed like some rich person paid for this, and we don't know why. But it meant that because that was when you could still just like bring a random TV that had bunny ears and plug oh, it yeah. into the wall and get service. It meant that we had four channels and perfect HBO. Who needs running water when you have HBO? That's I mean, that's kind of how I feel. That should be their new motto. <laughs> um, yeah, so I got into Six Feet Under. It started airing while I was in college. I think after I moved out of the dorms, I became less and less of a viewer just because I never had a TV. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the final season aired the year that I moved to New York City and I lived in one of these awful share apartments with like seven other people and it's one of those things you can only do when you're 21 because you think it's super glamorous oh wow but about 20 minutes later I realized that it was my personal hell and I couldn't afford to get out of it on a Sunday night somehow I had the place to myself and I was like oh you know I wonder what's on tv what's on Sunday nights And for some reason, we were able to get HBO, and it was the finale of Six Feet Under. Oh, shit. Yeah, it's funny, because when I was growing up, I had this thing about watching like series finales, Mm -hmm. even if they were shows that I had never watched. Mm -hmm. I think there was something really beautiful about it, because it was like the couple who's always been avoiding each other finally gets together. Mm -hmm. Like the person who wants a giant thing finally accomplishes their goal. Mm -hmm. I just felt like there was, even if I didn't understand who the people were, like you can kind of piece it together from watching a finale. Mm -hmm. And it really spoke to this part of me that I didn't totally understand that, that sort of like, oh my gosh, it's all going to work out someday. Yeah. So I think I, you know, I, I had been a six feet under viewer, maybe not regularly. Like I would watch it when I could, when it came on, when I remembered, and I really got lucky not remembering what day the finale was. I wasn't keeping up with the show at that point. And I somehow had one hour to myself in front of a television with nobody else. And obviously like every other person on the planet, I cried my face off. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's get into this episode. So yeah, we start with, I think the roughest death of the week. I remembered this death. The minute it started, I was like, oh, it's this one, which I don't always, sometimes I'm like, what the hell is this? I felt like my heart got punched in the heart. (laughs) (laughs) We're watching this from the point of view 
of a baby, the parents crouch over the the crib and talk to the baby and talk to each other, and they're painfully young. So young. The father is played by an actor named Patrick Cavanaugh, who was on Mad Men. Yes, he was one of the douchey copywriters on Mad Men. So we see the parents leave the baby for the night, and then the baby is watching a mobile. It's this weird, like, like black and white mobile, and there's, like, one thing that's, like, a face, and one thing is, like, stripes. It looks like a prop from The Nightmare Before Christmas. It does. No, no, no. There was a whole thing in the 90s where I feel like tons of babies had black and white mobiles because there was this study that said that babies can't discern color at that age. They can only see black and white. So I remember there was this whole thing where everybody was selling black and white baby toys and stuff. What? I did not know this. That's fascinating. I did not realize that. I just was like, this is a creepy mobile. I know. I was like, why would you buy your child this mobile? So the mobile starts to get blurry and it's just so It's rough. It's really rough. But very like beautifully done. Yeah. We have delayed the inevitable, but we have to say goodbye to Dylan Michael Cooper, 2001 to 2001 um so we start with the fishers this week with david kicking a one-night stand he met on al gore's internet right on (laughs) out of his apartment the one-night stand says you were a lot nicer online aren't we all that's not true i'm way meaner on the internet (laughs) (laughs) like have you seen twitter but like it's funny because in in 2001 meeting someone online was like oh, what sort of weird fringe stuff are you getting into? Whereas now you're like, oh, this is literally the only way to meet anybody. This guy's whole personality is that he smokes. (laughs) Oh, and he's got boots. He smokes and has boots. Oh, yeah. He seems great. So in the next scene, smoking guy leaves and Ruth is outside David's apartment. And Ruth just last episode learned from their temporary embalmer that (laughs) David is gay. The thing that made me sad about this is that if David could have just come clean about Keith, this whole thing wouldn't have happened. I know. If she, but like, okay, I get that argument, but also come at it as a writer. It's like when people complained that Juno didn't get an abortion, I was like, the movie would be 10 minutes long. No, I know. It just makes me sad about Keith's on the credits. Like, why? Like want them to be together. It's also like if 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 he'd introduced Keith, it would be like here is my church going boyfriend. Yes, but I'm sure Ruth would have found a way to be like racist about it. So this dude, uh, David's hookup, whose name we never learn, is like tying his shoe. And Ruth has this vision of what happened in David's room last night, which is this like weird like S&M bondage thing. The Fishers are always fantasizing about what other family members are doing when they have sex. And it is terrible. So Ruth uh, deals with this vision she's having by spraying um, smoking dude with a hose. Yeah, this vision of of David being whipped with a cat of nine tails. It seems kind of tame, but I know that for Ruth, that's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And she sprays him with a hose. He just says hi, and she sprays him with a hose. It's it's rude. It's rude. I know. I kind of, I don't know. I kind of liked it. This guy guy doesn't have a good vibe to me, but it's... I don't know. The Fishers have terrible manners. Yes, that is very true. Atrocious. So it's Chenoweth time with Brenda's answering machine. She is in bed with Nate listening to Billy leave a message 
she says fuck you in the weirdest way. It sounds like she can't keep her Australian accent from coming out. And Nate sort of expositions about how he is going to Vegas today to go to the Western States Funeral Directors Conference, which I'm going to for the rest of the episode call Funeral Con. Great. Because I've been to a few Comic-Cons, and this is basically what it is, but with coffins. I, in my previous life working for a trade publication, I went to conventions in Vegas quite a bit. Oh, you got some insight into this. I do have some insight into this, and I have been in situations where clients are buying me lap dances. Oh, my God. So I, and I also did not get a boner. Um, But uh, I do want to point out that Nate says uh, Vegas Baby Vegas, referencing the 1996 film Swingers, which was still relatively recent. The thing that Nate is really excited about at this conference is that he's going to tell off Gilardi. Oh, he's because back. Matt Gilardi's back. Yeah. And, and, and Brenda accurately again points out this is a pissing contest. Yeah. Because Nate now has this knowledge from Rico that Kroner burned down the Poseidon Society across right. the street. The other thing we learn in this oh, yeah. is that David is going to be giving a speech on the future of the independent funeral home. Oh, yes, that Nate which, Senior yes. was supposed to give. Yeah, which reminds us of like that this death of their father, even though they don't talk about it, is still very present in their lives. I have a bit of a heaven can't Nate for this scene. Go for it. Which is sort of like my heaven can't Nate for the episode, but it's starts in this scene which is that he seems very cavalier about leaving Brenda even though her brother who he has talked about being like terrifying many times in the past is calling her and leaving threatening answering machine messages Mm. like he's just like see you later everything's gonna be fine like I don't like that you know what I don't like their whole relationship well, <laughs> like we, they're yeah. both awful. They're both toxic and they deserve each other. The fact that he's still speaking to her after the whole weird thing with the Australian guy being oh, naked yeah. in her apartment mm-hmm. and that she claims that it's no big deal and he needs to get over himself because she can have her own life. Like, fine, have your own life. Yeah. You know, they're in their mid 30s, though. You guys can't be too picky. <laughs> You can't be too picky about whether your girlfriend brings home nude Australians. No, that's not true. They, they should. It's very toxic. I'm glad they've taken each other out of the dating pool. Do you know what I mean? It's like, well, just date each other so that neither of you are out there trying to date us. Um, in the next scene, David meets with the young couple who the lost Coopers. their son. Oh, I see. I didn't. I did not note their names. They're babies themselves, um, and they they can't wrap their head around the idea that they have to have a funeral for their three week old baby who died oh. of SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome. It's oh my god. I wrote down that they seem like they're drugged, and I don't mean that they're acting erratic. They just seem so like dazed and like unable to deal with anything. And Nate has one of his moments where he comes in with a little platitude where he says that some babies are too good for this world, which seems to not work, but it does seem to kind of placate the parents a little. And Mm -hmm. David looks like he wants to set Nate on fire. David's generally right about wanting to set Nate on fire, though. It's been interesting rewatching this whole season because David can be very mean and unforgiving which again like I love a bag on Nate but like mm. some it's with everybody you know he hasn't dealt with losing Keith and he's so angry I but think I was he like, hates himself so much he does honestly himself. that it yeah. comes out I mean not to excuse it but I think that explains a lot of why he is the way that oh, he is oh it's 100% yeah. self-loathing and it's hard because you feel a lot of empathy for him but at the same time you're like chill out man yeah yeah Yeah, I mean one thing about David and Nate's relationship that I find really interesting is kind of the birth order thing and how it 
throws it out a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm an older kid in my family and I'm a total cliche, like type A, did well in school. I was the quote unquote good kid. Like I never stayed out past my curfew. I'm much more uptight than my sister is. And I feel like all the cliches about oldest kids are totally reversed in the Fisher family because Nate was just like, I'm going to go to Seattle and fuck off. And David is the one who stepped up to take over the family business. And I feel for him because so often I feel like he's in there doing things by the book. He's the only one who gives a shit about getting business and keeping the place open while Nate can't be bothered to study for his funeral director exam. He always has to be the bad cop. David always has to be the one who comes in and makes them sign the form and makes them pay the money. And then all of a sudden, like, I would resent the hell out of my brother swooping in and saying, like, one useful platitude and then everyone being like, yay, Nate saved the day. That was the perfect thing. Like, I'd be mad as hell. That's entirely fair. Yeah, Yeah. that's true. Rico in this next scene is back. He's back at the Fisher home. He He works there again. So the first body back is the body of Dylan Cooper, and uh, it's terrible. It's basically the roughest body you could give Rico because because Vanessa, his wife, is pregnant and like soon to have their child. For a long time, Rico has been the one who's like, "Hey, body is cool." Like he doesn't really like he isn't really affected by death. Like obviously the extremist Nate, who's like dead body is terrifying. Yeah. But Rico's always the one who's like, oh, like, let me look at this, like, head that's been half lopped off. But his breaking point is babies. And we learn later that he's always like, if there's any baby that needs to be embalmed, I give it to David. Rico doesn't hide the fact that he thinks David is not very good at embalming. Yeah. And at restorative work. Mm -hmm. So it means quite a lot for Rico to willingly give him a body. We see a couple times over the course of this episode, like, little bits of the body. Yeah. And it's very realistic it reminds me of the episode with anthony with gabe's uh little brother a few oh, weeks that's ago right where yes. you would you wouldn't see the whole body the way you would with an adult you just yeah. see the body in pieces and that makes it even more affecting but in this episode it's even more affecting because you just see like the tiny hands and the tiny feet and yeah. like freddie rodriguez is doing some really good work in this episode yes this is a good rico episode yeah i think i always feel sympathetic for rico and vanessa because i hate most of the fishers all the time oh no <laughs> so i'm like yeah you're right they are screwing you you deserve better rico and, and i feel like that's me coming in with sort of a more working class background where i'm like yeah you don't have to work for these people like damn the man rico rico is the most talented person working at Fisher and Son. Oh, Hanson. Well, and he comes to it from a place of passion as opposed to a place of like, well, I grew up around dead bodies, so I guess I'm going to stay around them. When he he left Kroner, we get into it in the last episode, but he left Kroner because it felt Mm factory-like. I think also the money was probably not as good as he thought it was going to be, but still, like, he he left it because he has integrity and uh, loves loves his craft. So in the next scene, Ruth rolls into David's apartment uh, without knocking, as everybody does at David's apartment, and she brings up some laundry. Does she still do his laundry? It seems like David is a kind of person who'd be like, no, I want my shirts laundered just so nobody else touched them. Yeah, do your own laundry, David. It's very strange. But I also feel like maybe it wasn't his decision because she does love being inappropriate and not having boundaries. That's true. And maybe this is like a power move. And David's bedroom is basically like a whodunit, but the whodunit (laughs) is that David had sex with a man. The lube bottle is the biggest bottle of lube that's ever existed. Nobody needs that much lube. It's shot from such an angle it looks like the World Trade Center. <laughs> like, it is so <laughs> big. And I do love David's, like, 
I know you saw that, but I'm just going to like shepherd a t-shirt around and there's it. like this moment where Ruth sees like the condom wrapper on the floor and it's like Duh-duh. oh my god um so this includes a Ruth moment the scene that I super love where Ruth tries to ask David if he's gay and asks it very she's like David are you uh the and David's like can we talk about it when I get back and she says yes of course that's a lovely idea <laughs> We'll talk about it when you're back from Vegas, which is the mommest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Also, I feel like there should be a drinking game for this episode where you drink every time they say Vegas. Like, it's so exposition-y. We get it. You are going to Las Vegas. Well, I have a question, and maybe, and we can talk about it when we get there, but maybe you can shed some insight. I believe that the Paris Casino paid for this episode. I said, I, I think it's a, I think it's a promotional Paris Casino episode. They get a whole montage. <laughs> yeah. They really do. The sort of, like, Vegas as product place is pretty insane and I, it does feel like specifically the Paris the casino. Paris casino yeah. and possibly like the Vegas Chamber of Commerce like finance this episode so we ended last the last episode on a cliffhanger which first is ever really, six feet under cliffhanger yes very rare and then we finally like eight scenes in get Claire she calls Mrs. Demas Gabe's mother and she hears some disturbing news Gabe is in the hospital and she like peels on out. She was she's at home, right? So she just like peels yeah. She's on like out on the porch, there. and then she just like zooms off in her green hearse. And then Ruth is going to work at the flower shop, and she's ten minutes late. Oh boy! Scandal alert! Nikolai gets real bitchy at her. Do you have a Nikolai opinion? Um, I have this thing where because I really only watch like four shows, so whenever I see some actor who looks what super are your familiar, four shows? Um, they're they all have murder in the title. Great, sure. So Nikolai looked super familiar. So luckily now I have IMDb and I can just look this stuff up. And I was like, oh, you were in an episode of Murder, She Wrote. That's um, where I've seen you before. Yeah. So it's like Murder, She Wrote, Miss Fisher's Midsummer Murder, Murders, Miss Fisher's Murder. Like sometimes it's just a matter of I have seen you. So therefore, which episode of Murder, She Wrote were you on? He plays a grumpy New York City cop in a oh. late season Murder, She Wrote. Well, he is a pissed off Russian florist in this episode. He is so mad about how Ruth arranges all her flowers funereally. And he gets this feedback from a person we've seen in the background but have not actually met until now. Yes, Robbie. Yes. Um, Played by Joel Brooks, a uh, character actor who's been in many things. And Nikolai is also, they've broken. Like, Ruth is not seeing Nikolai anymore since the last episode. I don't think she's ever actually seen him, right? She she swore off of him to the lady who accosted her in the bathroom yes. in the last episode. Yeah, she was like, I'm not going to try to fake date Nikolai. Because she's still technically dating Hiram. Oh, God. Forgot about Hiram. He's, he's don't around. Don't forget about Ed Begley Jr. I, I, he won't Ed let Ed Begley Jr. is very polarizing is what we found out from our guests. Like, I'm like, yeah, Ed Begley Jr. We've had some hate for Ed Begley Jr. Yeah, Allison yep. hates Ed Begley Jr. Our producer, Allison, hates Ed Begley Jr. <laughs> I feel neutral about him, but I don't want to have sex with him. So Nikolai wants Ruth to help with the books and not do funeral flower arrangements for weddings. And uh, Ruth yells that she helped her husband with the books for over 30 years. She doesn't want to do it anymore. And you you kind of see this burgeoning, maybe there's going to be a conflict between her and Robbie, who yes. we've just met. Robbie would like there to be a conflict. That's Robbie true. wants some drama. 
And then Nate and David are getting ready to leave for Vegas. And David is trying to talk Nate out of picking a fight with Gilardi. And Nate is so excited about picking a fight with Gilardi. And then Brenda just shows up. Yeah, I, get, I think it's okay. I think it's fine. Um, she's wearing very tiny sunglasses, which were very cool then and are also cool again now. I don't like them, but she is on trend. Um, so Brenda's coming to Vegas. Nate is like, sure. <laughs> and, and David is just very happy to third wheel this entire yeah. episode, which like, good for him. It's nice. They're be- I guess they're becoming friends. It's I mean, yeah. I think if anything, also, it allows him to separate from his brother a little bit and continue being isolated, which he seems to actually really like. So we have Rico and Vanessa at a, is a sonogram? Ultrasound? ultrasound? Great. I mean, it's an ultrasound. So Vanessa has preeclampsia and has to go on bed rest. Which, which is, is a disease I know very well from Downton Abbey. Oh, I know it well from people I know having had it. Oh, no. And it is not good. But it seems like Vanessa is determined to die from it, which I'll get into later. Uh, and so this also ties us into the death of the week. Yeah, so the doctor is very like, don't worry about it, it's fine. And Vanessa's like, yeah, I'm not worried. And Rico's like, I have like a dead baby, literally, it is for work. Yeah. And all I'm thinking about is dead babies. And now you're telling me that like, there's trouble with my baby and I'm freaking out. And I think it's entirely fair that he's freaking out. Yeah, totally. It's scary. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. I just feel like the episode was a bit ham-fisted about it. Like, we get it. It is an extremely obvious line to draw between... Rico having to take care of the dead baby and then Rico freaking out about his own baby. So next we have Claire arriving at the hospital uh, to find Gabe. In Barstow. If you love someone, you drive to Barstow. That's that's how you know. I think it's like a three-hour drive. I also like that. I feel like the show is funny with time when it comes to Claire. She just disappears for large chunks of time, and we're supposed to act like it's normal. Well, the show is funny about time, period, because I never know what day it is. But, but also Claire is a minor. Yeah. Because yeah. she just keeps disappearing and not mentioning where she's going and just like everyone assumes she'll come back at some point. Well, later in the episode, Ruth will say, you didn't come home last night in the chillest voice <laughs> a parent could ever possibly say that. And I had very chill parents when I was a teenager and they still would have been like, uh, what yo, the we called the police. That was before smartphones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was after she stole a foot. Yeah. Um. So Mrs. Demas continues to be so charmless and like sort of a caricature of like quote unquote white trash. I mean, they use the phrase white trash later, yeah. which is not a great phrase. But she's, I mean, I'm always torn between feeling a lot of pity for this character because, you know, her, her son, young died. son died, but she's also a monster to her living son. Yes, that is true. So it turns out that Gabe overdosed on speed and heroin. And it also turns out that he is uh, being a real dick to Claire. Yeah. And the kind of open question is, was this like he was just having some fun with some speed and heroin or was he trying to kill himself? The thing about this is I'm like, if you're doing speed and heroin, you might not be consciously trying to kill yourself, but something fucked up is happening. Yeah. So some somebody should be taking him to some sort of rehabilitation therapy program. No one on the show ever goes to therapy. <laughs> so no, I actually think there's like a weird anti-therapy agenda on the show because the only ones you know are Brenda's parents. That's true. Yeah. So Claire kind of like storms out because Gabe is being a dick. We uh, are next in Vegas. Yeah, Vegas, at, baby. At Funeral Con with the song With Plenty of Money in You by the Hal Kemp Orchestra. That is prominently featured in Swingers. Is it? Yes. yes. Okay. So this um, must, I feel like this must be a reference. I think that it's also just like, there's just like all these Vegas cliches that Swingers traffics in, but that like they're really, they're kind of like 
tough to get away from. Mm -hmm. Wait, let's talk about our Vegas feelings because you love Vegas. I love Vegas. So here I'm going to tell you why I love Vegas. The times I've gone to Vegas have been for work. Like playwriting stuff? Oh, no, no, no. Sorry. For So I used to work for an entertainment technology magazine. Okay. So I would go to lighting and sound conventions. Mm. So when I was in Vegas, one, it was paid for by somebody else. Two, my bosses always made it their business to stay in one of the nice non-gambling hotels, of which there are only like two. The food in Vegas is incredible. When I was there, it was always paid for by somebody else. So, and I don't drink and I don't gamble. And I got to see a bunch of shows for free. So my experiences with Vegas have always been like somebody else's foot in the bill and I was having a fun time. That's not too bad. Yeah. The, the time I went to Vegas was, um, it was also like somebody was foot in the bill. We were coming from Phoenix and we drove and my friend's friend who was like a high stakes poker player Oof. was like basically getting the bill footed for him and we were sort of his hanger-ons. We stayed at the Rio. Oh. And um, I was at the time like very cash poor and I was like, but I want to experience this. So we just sort of like hang out with um, our friend who was gambling and they just give us free drinks. So you didn't get to see Cirque. I did not see any shows. Mm. I did I did gamble on some really low stakes slot machines in like old Vegas. And oh, I, yeah. I lost like $13 and I felt okay about it. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. But I didn't like how it's just everybody's always trying to sell you stuff all the time. That is and true. And I did not like that. I have this kind of theory that in America people don't like to travel outside of their comfort zone. So the idea is like, that's why people love Epcot, right? Is you go to a place and you can pretend that you experienced other countries, but you don't have to meet anyone who's brown and doesn't speak English. And I feel like Vegas is a version of that kind of simulacrum. It's like there's a fake Venice, there's a fake Paris, there's a fake New York City, but you don't actually have to go anywhere or do anything outside of your comfort zone. Oh man, I just enjoyed the shrimps (laughs) (laughs) and the shows. Do you think that David would be less uptight if he got to go to the Magic Mike? Yes. yes. Show? Absolutely. If he let him enjoy, if he let himself enjoy it, which is debatable. So they arrive to Funeral Con at a happy hour that's pretty sad. And Brenda takes someone's name tag. She is Jasmine. She's really excited about like coming up with a fun fake character. So Matt Gilardi is at this happy hour. I hate him. This is my Heaven Can't Nate of the episode. Oh, no. <laughs> which is I know what you're when say. Nate is like, you can tell he's been so excited about telling off Gilardi. Oh, my God. He literally requests props. He asks Brenda for a matchbook, and she's it's like, uh, sure, I guess. And then he has a matchbook and like a, like a wad of ones. And he, he, when he meets Gilardi, he puts the ones in the matchbook in his pocket and says, like, you can use this. Like, next time you're going to burn down a building. The thing that I hate about this is not, I do hate that, but I also hate that Gilardi seems genuinely shook by it. (laughs) He looks scared and I'm like, Nate has no power. What's wrong with you? David is like, that wasn't smart. Like David's very Okay, to be fair, it was lame. Oh, it was lame for sure. But David seems to be like, oh, no, you've angered him. And I'm like, I I don't know what the threat is. Like what worst thing? Like he already has like a bounty out on the Fishers. Yeah, you might as well get there. Yeah, I feel like David should have just been like that was really lame and overly studied. (laughs) (laughs) So they start to drink at this happy hour. And then we kind of like segue into the Paris sponsored version. Also, I will say like having drinks on the convention floor, like Comic-Con does not have that. 
that's that that is something that we have there's also by the way there is a uh we see a bunch of like fancy coffins and one of the coffins oh, has yes. the last supper <laughs> i forgot about that i wish i we had seen more novelty coffins yeah oh i know like right? what was the kiss coffin there nate and brenda and david are all walking around and then david sort of like is like i'm gonna have an early night but he has that he has that look in his eyes. Yeah. That look like I'm going to do something foolhardy. <laughs> Which I don't think he does, or I don't think we know that he does this evening, but he just like has that wander and glance. Yeah. And Brenda talks about like they should go get a lap dance. And then we see Brenda and Nate kind of walking away at a weird angle. Could someone be watching them? From behind a fountain, perhaps? From behind a Is it Billy with, like, overgrown stalker hair? <laughs> Billy's aesthetics in this episode, I was I was very like, oh, my God, he looks amazing. Oh, my God, he looks like he's holding a John 316 sign under a bridge. <laughs> like, it yeah. really vacillates within seconds. It's both. It's both at once. It is both. Um, so next we have Gabe. He's in the hospital. He's waking up, and Claire is there. We found out he she slept in her car. Hockey Action Magazine. Oh, I did not recognize that. Claire brought Gabe an egg McMuffin. Well, there's nothing else in Barstow. That's true. And we find out Claire slept in her car. Ugh. She's like very committed to this disaster boy. She is all in in this episode she really gets there very quickly although she was in that last episode with with claire and gabe she was also very all in that's true and i get it because like the thing she said when she and nate were talking um in the laundry room she's like nobody needs me he needs me yeah i have to say one thing about re-watching this show i mean i have not seen any of these episodes since the show ended so it's been really interesting for me to go back and rewatch them one of them is thinking about fun home Yes. Oh, uh, yeah, we talked a little bit about yeah. that. Yeah, and what if Alison Bechtel was straight? Would she be Claire? Oh, interesting. And it's just something that I think about a lot, and her dad reminds me of David. Yeah. And oh, she kind of reminds yeah. me of Claire. Yeah. Oh, that's Especially, like, the, the repressed sexuality yeah. and realizing why her dad was acting out the way that he was and yeah. why he hurt people the way that he did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I could totally mm-hmm. see that. So... In this scene, Gabe is basically worried that Claire is going to tell his mom that he overdosed on purpose, Mm -hmm. which, again, I feel like she, his mother probably should be able to deduce that, but she's not all there emotionally or otherwise. I guess maybe he thinks he'll be committed. I don't know. They they make the stakes unclear. Yeah. And I'm like, will he get help? Because that sounds great. I wish that they would just say, like, why yeah. he's so afraid of it. Um, and he also bitches about his Egg McMuffin being cold. Time has not been kind to my opinion of Gabe. I'm not feeling very charitable toward Gabe, even though no. I know he has been through a lot. This episode, I'm like, Jesus, dude. He takes so much out on Claire, and Claire is giving him so much, too much. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, he sort of apologizes, kind of, because Claire gives him this look of death, which he deserves. Yeah. He's very bitchy. Yeah, he's very mean to her. Um, um, speaking of heartbreaking oh things, God, yeah. uh, in the next scene, it's it's Rico um, with baby Dylan's body. You just see like the little tiny baby feet mm. and, and Rico just with this like sad, horrified puppy dog look. And he's no. got the scalpel and he's we've never seen Rico hesitate in front of a body. before. No. And he is just terrified. So after that, we have Ruth taking a flower arranging class i'm obsessed with this i (laughs) 
love it. Love to get Ruth out with the, with the general public, for one thing. We don't see it a ton. Yes. And I love when it happens. Word. This class is filled with rapt, middle-aged women, and I can't get enough of it. And the instructor is played by Mary Gross, who <gasps> was on SNL in the early 80s. Well, and she was on Mary Tyler Moore, wasn't and she? that's who she is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... They're going to hammer some stems. By the way, I, I did some research on this because I, as I mentioned in a previous episode, I my first job was at a flower shop. Oh, yes. And I used to make arrangements. I also got yelled at about my arrangements, not because they were funereal, but just because I was putting the lily in the wrong place. Damn it, Jenna. But this, so this is sort of an outmoded practice. The idea is you hammer the stems, especially woody stems, uh-huh. because they're rougher, so they can get more water into them. Uh-huh. But now in the more enlightened world of flower arranging, I guess, it is like that just makes the flowers die faster, basically. I try to think about it as the stems are me, and the hammer is this episode beating me over the head with symbolism. <laughs> Well, I was going to say, I feel like this is a bit of a metaphor about like annihilating yourself as being a way to open yourself up. It's all worth it for the room full of middle-aged women hammering (laughs) their bouquets. I I love it. I laughed so loud. Their their hammers are comically large, for one thing. They look like they're an Acme Co. hammer. (laughs) I love it. I love it so much. I love when Six Feet Under is funny. Yes. Yes. I think... I think that's an underappreciated thing about the show. I think that Francis Conroy is hysterical. So next, we're back with Rico. He's at home. And then Vanessa comes in, and she was out at the freaking store. She has preeclampsia. Vanessa is a nurse. I'm so angry with Vanessa in this episode because she really should be on bed rest, and mm-hmm. it's really frustrating that she's not. As a person who knows some people who are in the, like, medical and emergency medical sure. profession they are the worst at taking care of themselves yeah no it may it, it makes sense oh one thing that does happen is she talks about her sister angelica mm-hmm. who we get to hear about a lot and one of my favorite things about six feet under is hearing about angelica's life as like a struggling <laughs> actress it's a throwaway <laughs> moment but it's pretty great it's so awesome to me, that's so la I really love when the show is very much of Los Angeles. And that's what's so delightful is because the Fishers are, like, when they are become show business adjacent in any way, it's always so funny and strange. Mm-hmm. And, like, we've heard before that, like, Angelica was in a cat food commercial. <laughs> and, like, all, and she has, like, an audition to play like this there. She has, like, an arc on some show. And I just love hearing about Angelica's life. So Rico and Vanessa argue about Vanessa being out. And Rico is freaking out about both his baby and having to do the reconstruction on mm-hmm. uh, Dylan Cooper. And he's very emotionally honest and yeah. open here. And I think it's really nice. There's no other marriages that we're really seeing on this show much. But like their relationship from the little we see of it is like, They actually talk to each other Mm -hmm. about what they're feeling, which is not something the Fishers do. It's weird. When I I started rewatching the show, I just remember being like, ugh, Rico. But rewatching season one, I'm like, Rico's pretty great. Um, So we're back in Vegas, and uh, Brenda is at a card table being propositioned by an older cowboy. And Billy shows up, and as discussed, looks like he has been living under a freeway. They are arguing 
Billy says that their parents are lying about him basically building a bomb, which is Mm -hmm. what we found out in the previous episode and one of the reasons that Brenda had to uh, give up a scholarship to Yale. Well, and you just don't know who's telling the truth because Brenda's parents and Billy are equally likely to lie. Yes. I think that their parents probably have lied a little, Mm -hmm. but it does seem by the end of this argument that Billy seems caught out. It seems like her parents are telling the truth. Yeah, that they're essentially telling the the truth about this whole thing. And just as this fight is kind of crescendoing, um, Nate comes in from somewhere and shoves Billy. Good job. I thought that was good. I think so, too. And you, you can tell that Nate is really satisfied to do this because yeah. he's wanting to do this forever. Um, I like it when he shows Billy and Billy says, nice, and then leaves, <laughs> which is the lamest way to get back at him. I think it's interesting here, especially with the stuff that's going on with Claire in this episode, that there's some parallels, I think, between Brenda and Claire and like what they have or are currently giving up for men in their lives they care about yeah. who may or may not be suicidal. Is Billy suicidal? I think Billy is so solipsistic that he almost can't. I, I think that he's like the world can't That's exist. That's like the Billy and mm-hmm. David thing for me is like they're opposite ends of a spectrum. Like Billy is what happens if you love yourself just way too much to yeah. the point where it becomes insane. And David hates himself so much that he puts himself in these really dangerous situations. Yeah. So after Billy has sort of slunk away, Nate kind of says like he's not surprised, which is a little part of my like big heaven can't Nate. I'm like, yeah, but you were going to leave Brenda alone Mm -hmm. in L.A. to maybe have him come over to break into her house again or something. Yeah, the level to which Nate and Brenda are concerned about the stalkeriness of Billy is a little... All over the place. I think that's, yeah, I think that's right. Brenda also has like... Or the danger of Billy, generally. Yeah, totally. Like, and in previous episodes, Brenda's just been like, oh, he's harmless. And it's like, well, he's not. And it's, yeah, it's a little, it's a little all over the place. And then we go back to Rico, and he's with the baby again. Mm -hmm. And um, it is uh, uh, sad. Yeah. And then we're back at the flower arranging class. Oh, yes. The, the pure comedy of the episode. And um, the instructor is walking around and looking at all these beautiful, like, tall, open arrangements. And then she gets to Ruth's arrangement. And it is, like, this little short squat, like, way too many flowers in one place. Well, they do a great job of, I was, because I was kind of thinking, I was like, what does a funeral arrangement look like that isn't, le- you know, that isn't, like, wedding flowers or whatever? And then I was like, oh, yeah, that's it. That's yeah. what it is. It looks like that. Yeah. It also, it looks like Ruth. It looks like Ruth's feelings. She's just like, <laughs> I'm just going to stuff this all in here and it'll be fine. And like, it doesn't need any water. And the the instructor starts talking about her breathing. Ugh, I love um, the instructor. The, yeah, the instructor like basically is like, you're breathing from your brain and you should breathe from like your crotch. Mm-hmm. I don't know. She just sort of points like loosely downward. <laughs> And then she asks if, if Ruth does yoga. Like, of course Ruth doesn't do yoga. <laughs> I didn't think you were allowed to live in L.A. if you didn't do yoga. The Fishers live in L.A. but were plunked down there mm-hmm. like like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. Like, they're so not L.A. We've talked about this in a previous episode. Like, they act baffled when a person of color is around. Like, they're very, like, not L.A. They're while like being in L.A. They're like 19th century New England Puritans. Yes. And then their house got, yeah, like moved in a tornado yeah. over to L.A. Like, Olive Kittredge is, is that. There. Yes. Um, the teacher asks them all to get yoga mats in from the next room because they're gonna breathe, which delights me. And then I want to take this class, <laughs> right? And then the teacher also tells Ruth that she's a control freak, and Ruth does what all control freaks do, which is bark. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> 
And also she has to have Ruth is on antidepressants. And it's like a little bit like, yes, but also like boundaries learning on us. <laughs> I mean, the learning on us instructor also has no boundaries. And I love when she's like, I'd be lost without my St. John's war. Like that's an antidepressant. <laughs> so in the next scene, David gives his speech um, in Vegas um, on the future of the independent funeral home. It is boring. There are not a lot of people there. Someone's asleep. So David throws his, his note cards in the air. Yeah. And he really gives it to Croner. And Gilardi, by the way, is like sitting in the front row. And he's like, I am going to passionately and articulately yell at you specifically. Yeah. And he talks about um, how Nate Sr. You know, wanted to make money, but also like wanted to help people more than he wanted to make a buck. Mm-hmm. The sort of financial state of the funeral home goes back and forth kind of depending on what the plot needs Mm -hmm. I feel like they do fine with the business like based on what everybody got in the will but whatever it's not and also based on the clothes they're wearing yeah yeah they got some nice some nice suits but so David's speech gets a standing ovation it is started by Nate who's very into it yeah so after Nate starts a standing ovation everybody joins him and David is uh He's greeted as a liberator. <laughs> yes. What I love about that scene is like Nate thought he was being the big man. Yes. Mm-hmm. But then David just brings it. Yeah. yeah. David really does it and he didn't have to have a prop to do it. And he talks about their their dad in a way that seems very touching to Nate. Yeah. It's interesting because it's like if you want to go back to the flower class, Nate's just thinking with his head. He's like, what's a clever snarky thing that I can say? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But David goes from his gut. Yeah. And, you know, he's not planning to make that speech, but he just does. And it just comes out of him naturally. And it's also like a eulogy for his dad. Yeah. Totally. Absolutely. And then we're back at the Fisher house and uh, Ruth and Claire are in the kitchen. And, and Ruth, yeah, like you said, <laughs> oh my God, is very cash. Like, like, hey, 16-year-old daughter, I noticed that you haven't been home for like 24 hours. You didn't come home last night. So Ruth asks Claire if she is a control freak. Claire says, yeah. <laughs> Um, which and I also says, at. where do you think David got it from? Oh, yeah, totally. Ruth is like, may I ask where you were last oh, night? Oh, my God. Like, just yes. ask. She's 16. So they talk about Gabe. Claire opens up. Claire, I think, is is being like a good daughter in this She's scene. being very, very honest. She's yeah. like being honest, and she's not like snippy about it. And she talks a little bit about Gabe. And Ruth says Gabe is disturbed or sounds disturbed. And I mean, she's not wrong. Well, and and Ruth seems to know more about ODing than I would have given her credit for. Yeah, she gets there very quickly. Yeah. She's sort of like, was he trying to kill himself? And Claire says no. What it means in the larger sense of like what what happens now that people know this, like Mm -hmm. what are people doing with this information is still unclear to me. And it's also like pretty stone cold to be like, oh, your friend tried to kill himself. You should stay away from him. Mm Mm-hmm. And then, well, and then she does her her breathing at the end. Yes. Which is like the control freak version of what relaxed breathing would sound like. Yeah, it's true. And then we're back at Funeral Con. Um, and coffin Con. Coffin Con. Back I'm at sorry. Coffin Con. David is popular, which nobody saw coming. <laughs> no. And David is like riding that wave. I love all the old funeral directors. They're not like old, but like everyone is older than David and Nate. Like all these dudes are in their 50s and 60s. Yeah, they're all like 50 to 70 and very white. It's another reminder that the Fishers are like in the world of funeral homes. They are like young, hotshot iconoclasts. Yes. So David is going to go out with the the funeral directors 
Brenda and Nate are gonna go do their own thing. Um, and David seems really happy. Yeah. And then we're at the funeral oh, for God. the baby. This child was so young. He, like they didn't even have a chance to like kind of form their idea of him. I think I think it's really interesting the thing that they talk about, especially when they're doing initially doing intake with these two is the idea of like how do you have a funeral for a person who never got a chance to be a person they say that his grandparents didn't get to meet him like one set of the grandparents like drove down because they hadn't come yet it's so ugh, it's so awful and the parents thank rico um and ask him you know if he has kids and he says yeah he has a four-year-old son rico leaves and he closes the door because he cannot stand to be there which I can completely understand I said stop talking to Rico you are making him reflect in my notes (laughs) so then we have Nate and Brenda strolling around Vegas the Paris Casino like hardcore paid for this it is so off tone for the show there's like this whole montage set to Francis Lamarck's A Paris oh yes this is what okay that's right that's when this happens it is very silly um but you know whatever you know making tv is expensive you gotta get your locations paid for and And they have like a like a like a fun saver single use camera this this hit me this hit me deep yeah, so we, we see them, and then by the end of this, Nate and Brenda are getting ready to have sex, mm-hmm. and Brenda has some great matching underwear. So David is at a strip club elsewhere in Vegas, and he loves it. He's and having I, a great time. I, good for David. I know. He's just like... He's drunk and happy. He's drunk and happy, which don't often go together. He's for riding the high of his Mr. Holland's and Opus he's speech. got these guys telling him how great he is, yes. which no one ever says anything nice to David. And they bought him a lap dance. And da- I, you know, I gotta say, David has excellent etiquette because he's not gonna get any sexual gratification from the lap dance, but he's just like happy to be talking to people. Yeah, and he's very nice, and they're alive, so that's mm-hmm. fun for him. It's great. Yeah, not dead. So, yeah, he gets a lap dance from um, a stripper named Amber. And I wrote in my notes, there are boobs. Yes, there are boobs. Spoiler. (laughs) He still is being Jim from Boston. He says Um, he's Jim from Boston. And he lives downtown. (laughs) And then nothing is happening downtown for David. Okay, I thought that was really uncool. Wait, oh, what she did? Yeah. Terrible. No, I thought it was... There are so many reasons that that could have happened. Well, also, yeah, I was like, what if he had something happen to him in the war? Yes. Mm -hmm. I don't know what war, some war. I do not know what was going on in her head. I would feel like it might be more pleasant to give a lap dance to someone who is just having a nice time and not maybe trying to grab you. She still gets paid either way. She already did get paid. Yeah. She's so mean about it. And David well, the fact is so, that she like outs him to these guys. Why does she do that? Isn't that cool? When she tells all the other guys that he's gay, one thing that I really like that the show keeps doing is it's set in a pretty progressive place. Like, no one seems to have a problem with David being gay except him and his mom. Yeah. Well, yeah. So and, like, the other funeral director guys do not mind. Yeah, well, they just say, I wish you would have told I us. I wish you would have told us. And then he's like, so, so do I. And I was like, well, but they didn't say, I wish you would have told us so because we wouldn't have invited you out. They probably mean maybe we wouldn't have gone to a strip club. Right. Yeah. Or we would have tried to do something that you were more interested in doing. Yeah, like, I think he's the man of the hour. Yeah. So, I mean, so much of this, and this comes up in this episode too, is it's so much about his own internalized homophobia and self-loathing. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I have to go catch a flight to Omaha. 
So I'm going to be getting out of here a little bit early, but this was really fun and I loved this episode and it was such a treat. I've actually been rewatching the entire first season from the beginning. I I got a little too into this assignment. Like I went full throttle Claire and just like went for it. Nice. Um, And yeah, I think I'm just going to end up rewatching whatever is available on Amazon Prime. Like this has been so much fun. The thing that's really been tough for me is that so many of my favorite shows that I remember really loving when I was in high school and college, like that very formative era, like Gilmore Girls and Friends, upon rewatch, I don't think they're good. I don't know how much of it is having a more modern sensibility, like, wow, those borderline racist jokes are not cool. But I think a lot of it is me getting older and no longer connecting with the characters in the same way. Like, it's been tough for me to rewatch things that I thought I loved and realize that I don't. Yeah, sure. And this show, so far, I'm only in season one, but it has been like catching up with an old friend. And that's Mm -hmm. a nice feeling. I think I feel more sympathetic to most of the people. Being able to see it as an adult and connect more with, especially people like Ruth, who I feel so sympathetic for. I thought she was just an annoying mom. And it's been fun to get older and connect with the show on a different level, but still like it. Uh, Where can people find you? on the internet uh so i think as far as i know i'm the only person named lilith marcus on the entire internet um Amazing. but i'm at wow. lilith marcus all one word on twitter great yeah that's good and bad because yeah. like it means people can find you really easily so we're about to get into the toughest part of the episode which starts with david finding his stripper pamphlet in his suit jacket that he got i think last night And it's all women in the front, but he flips to the back and he finds Brad. Oh, boy. So so Ruth is at her flower arranging class and she's breathing and she's arranging flowers. And the flower arrangement still looks like her stress made manifest. Yes, that is true. But she's she's sort of like nailing it. Yeah, then she well then she starts like pulling out flowers and the there's this really interesting sound mixing thing that happens where it's just Ruth like breathing and pulling out flowers yeah. and then putting in new flowers and everybody starts like gathering around her being like, "Yeah, you're doing it." It's a little bit over the top in the same way that it was over the top when people got really excited about David's speech. Yes, that is true. Ruth is consistently the person on this show who learns the most. She's interested in learning and growing, not in a way that is usually useful to her. Yeah. But she tries things. I think Ruth tries things more than anybody on this show. She's self-actualizing. Um, so then, oh my God, Brad from the pamphlet arrives at, I guess, this strip club to find David. He is he is sitting and drinking a beer like outside. He is like so wasted. Brad does not look like his picture. He's not a bad looking guy. No, but he's... he's- He's he, hot, but he does not look like his picture. He looks like he's like been through some stuff since his picture. Um, he's wearing bell bottoms. He- David is very upset he's late. And I was like, You're mad that your sex worker is late? He's 20 minutes late. Brad says that $200 gets you a pony ride all the way to the moon and back. Oh my God. And then David only has $80. And Brad says that it's fine. And it makes me so. Sad. It's so sad for everyone. And then David also like won't take him back to his room, which I don't understand why he won't. I know. He's like, I can't take you back to my room. I'm like, oh, do you have like eyes on your room? Like are the feds after you, Oh my you, God. David? I mean, he definitely thinks that like Nate will see, but like also relax. Nate doesn't have to know that this is someone you're paying. So then they end up. Um, oh God. They end up having sex against like an old a muscle car? car. Like whose car is that? <laughs> Yeah, someone like, is in a, about in to a have a messed up morning the next day. Yeah. And David is calling him the F word. Oh, It's just like 
David's self-loathing just proudly on display or shamefully on display. Shamefully in the shadows, but also... Like, Brad doesn't deserve this. No, I feel bad for Brad. So David is arrested. Yeah, we don't know what happens to Brad. We don't know what happens to Brad. I was a little like, is this the worst thing the Vegas cops have to do tonight? Like, Oh, I'm sure not. <laughs> like, what's... Okay. And then, then he's getting fingerprinted at the police oh. station. And one of the cops calls him Sally, which just like... Oh, I didn't hear Yuck. that. Yeah. Oh, gross. Yeah, gross. So David gets one phone call and we see who he called and it is Keith. Who has to drive all the way from LA. Yeah, that's a that's a four hour Just drive. Just call Nate. Nate would actually be totally fine about this. I know, but I, I do understand why he called him because he wants it off his rack. He doesn't want to like have right, to go to. Right, because he's a cop. Yeah. Well, so, and here's the thing. Is Keith going to do as good a job erasing this as he did with Claire's foot thing? Because he did a terrible job. Um, Keith asked David if he used a condom. And David like basically is like, no. And he just needs to lie. He's a mess. Like, David is just a goddamn mess. Keith says he loves him, but he needs help. Uh, he being David. Yes. And uh, that's true. Yeah, it's true. So in the next scene, Vanessa and Rico are at home. Vanessa is in pain. Was it worth getting Julio his fucking snack, Vanessa? I this I just I'm so mad. I know she's a nurse, but whatever. I'm so mad at her about this. But so she's in pain, and it's it, they're gonna go to the hospital. It's like I I don't know. I feel a lot of sympathy for Vanessa. Like I understand that like objectively she should not have been doing the thing she did. But I also get it. Like I get the second somebody's like you have to take it easy. Yeah. I and guess if you so. are like a person who defines yourself by your usefulness, that is true. That is very true. And Vanessa's an extremely hard worker. So, mm-hmm. um, so it's the next morning in Vegas. David meets Brenda and Nate at their car. Uh, he looks terrible rough brenda and nate sort of tease him that he like got laid and david is just like what i gotta go to bed <laughs> like, I know. but david is also like honestly trying to be like no i just had a regular night and it's just like come on david and then uh ruth is back at the flower shop with her newfound flower arranging like mr miyagi skills um and she is breathing like a maniac and Nikolai says that Ruth is going to do all the flower arrangements today. And Robbie is very salty about it because he said he has like 20 years of experience. Yeah, it's which, true. You know, that's that's fair. So we haven't heard from Claire in a while, but she arrives at Gabe's bedside. She has driven back to Barstow because we know she came back to L.A. She kisses Gabe. And says she loves him. Oh, Oh, God. Being an adult watching this is tough stuff. I mean, and then Gabe says that he loves her back. And I am just like, oh, Claire. It's like she's just like leaping into like a sea full of jellyfish. Well, and Ruth, I mean, she's also doing the opposite of what Ruth told her to do. Yeah. Because Ruth is like, stay away. And she's like, guess I'm driving back to uh, Barstow. So we're back in L.A. with everybody. Brenda and Nate. Went to the one-hour photo place. Mm-hmm. They got their pictures developed. And another person has moved to Yikestown, USA, because Billy took a bunch of pictures of them sleeping in Las Vegas. It's genuinely very creepy. It's He got so close to them. I know. And they're like, because it's Billy and he's a photographer, they're these beautifully composed oh, horror Oh, yeah. Shots. They're, they're amazing. Yeah. It is awful it's how chilling. did he get into that hotel room it's it's not important but like, i'm sure he like talked his way into getting a card like billy yeah. is good at that oh shit. totally he was like i'm nate fisher i lost my card yeah yeah i think it would have been probably pretty easy for him and both of them are really freaked out 
And then Vanessa is in the hospital getting yeah. an emergency C-section. And Rico is, you know, scrubbed up and holding her hand. And it's like a Grey's Anatomy scene. So, like, there's a moment when you think the baby might be hurt or not alive. Yeah, the heart rate is dropping and the the doctors are like trying to keep them calm and they can't see what's happening, but they take the baby off somewhere and they ask if they've thought of a name. And Rico has, again, Freddy Rodriguez is great in this episode. Yeah, he really he has is. this look on his face of just total like fear and love and yeah. loss. And then the baby cries and he's okay. And Vanessa says they're going to name him Augusto. Yeah. After her father, I believe. And um, Rico is just really happy and loves his baby and is happy. Yeah. He's alive and we fade to white. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so yeah. what grade would you give this episode? You know, I didn't think about this at all, actually. And I am going to just spontaneously give it a B. I don't know why. <laughs> no, I'll talk about it. I'm going to give it a B because... I think it's a good episode. All the parts of it work. And I mean, the Claire stuff is like, I don't love what happens, but it's done real. I mean, I'm just like, Claire, don't, no, don't do that. I do think that there's like a little bit of heavy handedness and like tying Rico's baby yeah. to the poor baby that passes away. I agree. I like the Vegas stuff. The commercial thing is a little, for Paris is a little strange. Um, but it's not like one of the best, mm-hmm. but it's like, it's a, it's an entertaining episode. Yeah. Maybe I give it like a something between a B and a B plus. I think I'd give it a B minus. Oh, okay. Because I'm the bad cop. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think the, like, even though Freddie Rodriguez is great in this episode, like I said, oh, he's I, think, awesome. I think the stuff with like, oh, conveniently Rico's baby is going to be born in this episode yeah. about a dead baby yeah. is like a little too on the nose. Yeah. Like, I mean, my favorite part of this episode is the flower arranging stuff. I could, I could just watch an endless loop of the women hammering the stems. Like, it's yeah. just... That's amazing. It's just my favorite thing. I also wish that the funeral, that uh, Coffin Con, is that mm-hmm. what we're calling it, had been a little weirder. It felt like a missed opportunity to me, yes. honestly. There could have been so many characters. And I don't, yeah. it didn't have to get too quirky, but I just would have liked one or two to meet one or two more weirdos. Or to see like the stuff that was on like the convention hall floor. Yeah. Conventions are always weird. I mean, I've never been to a funeral convention. No. But it really, it, it just ends up being about the Fisher Boys and Gilardi. Yeah. Um, Which, ugh. Yeah. And I think it could have been a lot, about a lot more. So I liked this episode, but yeah, I think it had some clunky stuff yeah. as far as 1600 episodes go. For links to everything we talked about today and more information about us, visit our website at notoversfu.com. If you like the show, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave us a rating or a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show. You can write to us at notoversfu at gmail.com or give us a shout on Twitter at notoversfu. We'd love to hear from you. You can find me, Caroline, at carolinevmcgee. You can find me, Jenna, at Second Husk. You can find our producer, Allison Cherry, at Allison underscore Cherry. That's one L in Allison. Our theme song is written by Matt Berger and Melissa Lusk. Our logo was designed by Caitlin Trishiani. Until next time, be like Ruth, breathe from your center, and hammer the crap out of some azaleas.